Hello, and welcome once again to the Thucydiusy podcast with me, Neville Morley, exploring misquotations and misattributions associated with the great Greek writer Thucydides. Now, this is actually our tenth episode, and it's taken less than four years to get there. And so, this episode, I'm going to be talking about a quote that's, I suppose you could say, in that sort of celebratory mood, or at least not unconnected to a bit of champagne cork popping. The peoples of the Mediterranean began to emerge from barbarism when they learned to cultivate the olive and the vine. Now, this appears all over the place, attributed to Thucydides, but especially on websites and in books celebrating wine. OK, that's kind of predictable, but for some reason olive oil manufacturers and marketing boards have been much less eager to embrace the quotation. There are some versions of the line that actually leave out the olive altogether, but certainly I haven't come across it in very many instances associated with the olive. It's all about wine, perhaps especially Greek wine, presumably because it reinforces the idea um, and certainly ties into a standard history of viticulture in Europe that this is all about the Greeks, that it's the Greeks who first take on the vine, start, um, you know, sort of cultivating it themselves as well as importing the products of others. So having an ancient Greek celebrating the role of the Greeks in civilising Europe is pretty much a no-brainer. Is it Thucydides? Well, it wouldn't be on this podcast if the answer was anything other than no. None of the quotations of this line that you'll find on the internet ever offers a specific reference. It's only ever Thucydides or 5th century Greek historian Thucydides. Now, you could say that's perhaps less of an issue than it might be, less of an issue than in the case of many of the misattributed quotations I've discussed, because it's really, really obvious where such a line would be found if it were to be found in Thucydides' text. It's quite clearly associated, or, well, that's really the wrong word, because it's not associated, but if it were genuine Thucydides, it would be sort of 99% likely that we would find this line in the section known as the archaeology. The first part of book one of the work, where Thucydides offers a thumbnail sketch of the early history of the Hellenes, from the time of myths and legends to the Persian Wars. This is the period where the development of viticulture is clearly being associated. It's where Thucydides does indeed offer some discussion of the theme of development out of poverty and barbarism towards the current power and sophistication of the Greeks. So the theme 
in very general terms, is not absent. However, wine doesn't actually feature. Thucydides, markers or symbols of an emergence out of barbarism into Greek civilization, are all about commerce. They're about the decline of piracy. They're about the erection of city walls, the development of more sophisticated political organization. They're about the abandonment of open carry, the fact that it's only barbarians who wander around with weapons in ordinary life. And it's all about the wearing of golden cicada brooches and naked wrestling. Um, viticulture doesn't come into it. There is a discussion about agriculture more generally. The fact that, Thucydides claims, the Greeks did not initially develop any sort of greatness or indeed wealth because they were too busy migrating all over the place. That because the land was for the most part very fertile, um, it's constantly being invaded, so one group is constantly being pushed off by another group, and they're actually not too bothered about this because they know they can move somewhere else and they'll find it just as easy to cultivate. It's only Attica, he claims, where the same people lived for long periods of time and were able to put down roots, and I suppose you could say were able to plant longer-term crops like vines and olives. But that's as far as it goes. There's nothing specific about vines or olives in Thucydides' account. It's only about agriculture in general. And at that point, the emphasis is less on civilization than it is on the absence of civilization, the extent to which you could almost say the Greeks hold themselves back for a long period because of constant warfare and lack of stability and so forth. We can see this, of course, as a, well, as a precursor, as a foreshadowing of the impact of the Peloponnesian War, how far the Greeks do, in fact, once again hold themselves back through constant squabbling. But there you go. Total absence of anything to do with the peoples of the Mediterranean emerging from barbarism. And I suppose you could say, actually, why would Thucydides be bothered about the peoples of the Mediterranean? He's interested in Greeks. So you could say that's another reason for suspecting that this quote doesn't have not just nothing to do with Thucydides, but maybe nothing to do with a Greek author. I did for a bit wonder if this is something that might, say, pop up as, in some form, a version of Herodotus. I can't find anything, but again, why would, why would Herodotus be talking about the civilization of the whole Mediterranean, given that the Greek perspective is more or less that it's the Greeks who are civilized, the rest of the Europeans definitely not. Anyway, so where does this quote come from, if it's not actually a proper um, version of anything in Thucydides. Why would anyone think that it is Thucydides? Well, the first step in the search is actually quite straightforward, as some of the people who quote this line on the internet do actually say where they got it from. Namely, 
The work of the wine writer Hugh Johnson, um, a book initially published back in 1989 as Vintage, The Story of Wine, and republished since as normally just The Story of Wine. It has appeared in multiple editions. It seems to be still one of the go-to popular books on the subject. And on page 35, we do indeed find this quote from Thucydides in Johnson's account of the very beginnings of Greek viticulture, allegedly in the very, very early Hilladic period. The peoples of the Mediterranean began to emerge from barbarism when they learned to cultivate the olive and the vine. It was Thucydides, the Greek historian, who wrote these words at the end of the 5th century BC, when Athens had become the centre of the most cultivated and creative society the world had known. Thucydides probably had no notion of when the process began to which he attached so much importance. Um, so... Johnson says, we're going back to the third millennium BCE. A rise in the population led directly to a more complex social system. A town is not a village. Specialisation begins, one man farms, another trades in his produce, a third becomes a lawyer to settle their disputes. Before long there is a need for administration, for ships, crews, for an army, and soon the force of personality brings out a leader who establishes his family in a position of power. Thucydides, I hasten to add, was not guilty of this glib sort of social history. Yeah, thanks Hugh. Um, but he was aware that oil and wine were powerful stimulants to trade, that trade led to the exchange of ideas, and that wine in particular brought a new dimension to social intercourse. Well, there's an awful lot going on here. Um, Johnson is clearly taking it as read that Thucydides had come up with that line, that it reflected his perceptive understanding of the importance of wine in his own society and his, I suppose you could say, limited but nevertheless significant understanding of the broad outline of previous development. The sense that, okay, Thucydides can't draw on the sort of archaeological evidence that modern scholars can, but nevertheless he can be put forward as an authoritative figure who understands that wine is important in the rise of civilization, but perhaps doesn't understand how important to the degree that Johnson now can. Now, Johnson doesn't offer any footnotes. So, where he got this, why he thinks it's Thucydides, which bit of Thucydides he thinks it is, well, he's not bothered and he's not telling us. The only way we can kind of take this forward at all is by looking at the books he says he consulted. Now, for this chapter, he actually cites quite a range of entirely reputable scholarship on very early Greece. And I'm tempted to say none of which looks like the sort of place where we would find invented quotations. Um, you know, even if they are mostly written by archaeologists. So 
rather than accuse, say, John Boardman or Colin Renfrew of fabricating Thucydides' quotations, I focused on the two most likely-looking subjects, older and, at least on the face of it, more general books, who might indeed be making sweeping generalisations about the rise of civilization and the role of viticulture in it, whether or not they directly attributed this to Thucydides, whether it's down to Johnson reading something along these lines sort of in the general vicinity of a reference to Thucydides and assuming that the two are the same thing, I don't know. I mean, that's the sort of thing basically I was looking for. If not the exact quotation, then the general gist of it, which is admittedly quite a difficult thing to judge. I mean, it's I've had no luck whatsoever doing Google searches because the key terms are so general and almost ubiquitous. You know, if you search for vines and olives and Mediterranean, you get an awful lot of stuff which has nothing to do with that quotation. If you search for something closer to that quotation, all you get is attributions to Thucydides. Anyway, so the first book I looked at was... H. Warner Allen's A History of Wine, published in 1961. And, OK, maybe this is my, my prejudice. My sort of assumption was, you know, books written that long ago might be a bit more relaxed about some of their citation practices. Um, they might be a bit more likely to make these sorts of very, very broad historical claims. Um, anyway. You know, worth a try. And perhaps even more, that a very general history of wine, rather than a sort of specific archaeological study of early Greece, was a more plausible place to look. Now, there is in fact no mention of Thucydides in Warner Allen's book. Um, and it's it has a pretty comprehensive index which is absolutely full of classical references. And this was actually a much better book than I expected it to be. Um, there's rather a good close reading of the wine drunk in the Odyssey, the distinction between the weak, naturally fermented grape juice drunk by the Cyclopes and the strong, rich vintages that the Greeks had picked up in Thrace. I mean, I don't actually know how this compares with sort of modern studies of wine in the Odyssey, but for 1961 it's actually quite a nice bit of sort of literary cultural reading. Um, I Warner Allen obviously had read a lot of classical texts. I really liked his disapproving account of Athenaeus Dipnosophistae. Um, which is a text I do love for its kind of, you know, miscellaneous randomness. Um, but, yeah, I quote, That decadent thirst for useless knowledge, stimulated in our day by the quizzes and questions on radio and television, consumed him, and he was determined to stuff into his farrago every scrap of book learning he could accumulate. I mean, I have to say, given that Athenaeus text is actually really quite handy for someone trying to write a history of wine in antiquity. This seems almost ungrateful. It obviously annoyed Warner Allen enormously. Um, but anyway, absolutely nothing in the way of general claims about the rise of civilization. absolutely no Thucydides, not really getting us anywhere. 
Which then leaves us with the other much older text in Johnson's bibliography, um, a French work, Raymond Billiard, Billiard, I assume one doesn't pronounce it, La Vigne dans l'Antiquité, published in 1913. Um, an author who, I discover, had in 1900 written a treatise on bees and apiculture in antiquity, so I was suddenly much more inclined to trust his judgment. Um, but nevertheless, worth a look. Now, the initial stage of this was incredibly aggravating, because I found that the only online version of Billiard's text appeared to have been digitised incredibly badly, so that only every other page was included, and a fair number of those were completely illegible. But I did manage to get hold of a copy from a Belgian colleague who works on the history of viticulture, so I could read it properly. And what we find are three references to Thucydides in the footnotes, all of them perfectly scholarly, none of them having anything to do with the development of civilization or barbarism or anything else. I did do a search for sort of other potentially relevant key terms like barbarism and civilization and olive and found absolutely nothing. Now, Billiard does offer some general comments on the association between viticulture and civilization. The fact that viticulture in particular depends on a degree of security and long-term settlement. And I suppose if you squinted at them very optimistically, you could think this brings Thucydides slightly to mind if you're already inclined to think of Thucydides. There is also an emphasis in his work on the importance of the Mediterranean for much of the history of viticulture, but that's because he is slightly obsessed with the question of when did wine start being produced in different parts of France. Um, this is a somewhat nationalistic work, uh, although it is concerned to sort of make the historical point that it's only in the South that viticulture was well established at an early date, that actually all the evidence suggests the Celts didn't do this sort of thing, and the sort of the Atlantic seaboard really didn't show any signs of vine cultivation until very late. Um, it's again, it's not the sort of grand claim about the Mediterranean and its civilization. It's a much more specific point. And there's absolutely nothing, as far as I can see, that could easily be translated or paraphrased as our quote. And even if someone did that, there's no reason why they would suddenly decide to associate Thucydides with it. Um, so much for Billiard, then, and unfortunately so much for my research, at least for the moment. There's always a question of how much time it's worth investing in this sort of search. Yes, I have a natural tendency to go down these rabbit holes. It's not always such a good thing, and occasionally even I start to sort of wonder about diminishing returns, especially when it's not obvious what I should do next. You know, if I had a really obvious sort of plan B or a really clear clue, I probably wouldn't stop. Um, but at this point, I'm really not sure, unless it actually is Colin Renfrew's fault after all. Um, 
and I should be sort of, you know, searching John Boardman to see if he's made sort of unwise statements of this kind. This still strikes me as very, very unlikely. And I do actually have a day job and rather a large piles of emails to get through by the end of today. Um, so, for the moment, I think we are still back with Johnson in 1989 and a big question mark about where he got this from. And it's with very mixed feelings that I have to say that this same principle of considering have we hit the point of diminishing returns really has to apply to this podcast as a whole. And so this will be the last episode of Thucydiacy, at least for a while. Okay, regular listeners who have been waiting for a new episode since September might wonder what difference this will make. It's also going to be the last in this exact format, because it's not just a matter of my time, it's also about the costs of subscribing to a hosting service so that this is made available via Podbean or via Apple Podcasts. I don't make any money out of producing these little episodes. It's debatable how successful it is as a form of research dissemination or impact. I mean, I know some people do listen to it. Um, I have no idea if this kind of changes your thinking about the world in any way. I mean, maybe if I built more of an audience by producing more episodes, then this might have more of an effect. But that's even more of an investment of time and energy for a very uncertain return. I mean, it's it's tricky. I do actually enjoy doing these in the same way that I used to enjoy doing music-based podcasts. Um, but is it actually worth it, especially when the bill for the next annual subscription to Podbean comes along. I do sometimes wonder, in retrospect, whether it would have been better to have a different format. I'm, as far as I can see, the most successful podcasts do actually seem to involve a couple of people, whether it's co-hosts chatting to one another, or it's one person interviewing guests. It is about the dialogue, it's about the interplay, I suppose it's about the, the jokes, rather than just one pompous middle-aged academic monologuing at length. Um, but here we are, or rather, there we were. But since this is the last episode, at least until I work out how to make um, MP3 files available on my blog, I don't want to end on a negative note. And so I'm going to conclude with one of the points where Thucydides did feature in Milliard's book. Not entirely in his own right, but in the bit where Milliard decides to quote Cicero, who, in his work Brutus, 287-8, explains his attitude towards trying to learn rhetorical skills from the Greek masters, and specifically whether or not one should learn from the speeches in Thucydides, by talking about vintage wines. I hadn't come across this bit of Cicero before. It's really rather fun, at least if you're me. And I quote, Thucydides was a herald of deeds, 
faithful and even grand. But our forensic speech, with its wrangling, its atmosphere of the courtroom, he never used. As for the speeches which he introduced, and they are numerous, I have always praised them, but imitate them? I could not if I wished, nor should I wish to, I imagine, if I could. To illustrate, it is as if a man were fond of Falernian wine, but did not want it so new as last year's, nor again so old as to search out a cask from the vintages of Opimius or Anicius. But those brands are acknowledged to be the best, comes a imagined response. Yes, I know, but too old a wine has not the mellowness which we want, and in fact it is scarcely longer fit to drink. If that then is one's feeling, need he go to the other extreme? and hold, if he wants a potable wine, that it must be drawn from the fresh vat? Certainly not. He will look for a wine of moderate age. In like manner, I hold that those friends of yours do well to shun this new oratory, still in a state of ferment, like must from the basin of the winepress, and conversely, that they ought not to strive for the manner of Thucydides. Splendid, doubtless but, like the vintage of Anicius, too old. Thucydides himself, if he had lived at a somewhat later time, would have been mellower and less harsh. Well, there is probably a stretched analogy to be made here between my crude homemade blackcurrant wine of a podcast that has been aged far too long and starting to turn to vinegar, and all those trendy young people on their TikToks. I did actually have a student last year who promised to suggest ways in which he thought I might try to present myself on TikTok, but thankfully for the world, they never got back to me about it. Sufficient under the day, etc. Uh, so, thank you for listening. I've been Neville Morley, obsessive Thucydides pedant, and this has been the Thucydiusy podcast. Cheers. <laughs>